All right, so let's go from Matthew 1 back to Ruth 4. That's where we're going to be this morning as we wrap up this four-week sermon series in the book of Ruth. And um, Pastor Jonathan, welcome back, brother. Haven't said hi to you yet. Um, Pastor Jonathan's picking up next week, and he's going to be leading us through a a series of four farewell sermons. You're going to want to hear those. Um, God has laid four significant truths, burdens upon our pastor's heart, and he's going to be sharing those over the next four weeks. And I think he's made us all universally jealous in following his Facebook page. If you followed it the last month, he's eaten. I think you've eaten pretty poorly, brother. And I think you need to come back home and get fed because obviously you've been starving yourself on your trip. If you haven't checked it out, you should check it out. It's quite it's quite tempting. Well, Ruth chapter four uh, is the conclusion of the story. And uh, if you're familiar at all with Ruth, you know that last week we kind of left with a cliffhanger because the cliffhanger was what's going to ultimately happen is Boaz going to be able to redeem the situation that Ruth and Naomi are in. And the storyline of Ruth is really interesting. If you think about it, it's a microcosm of the story of the entire Bible, because what you have in Ruth chapter one is essentially a funeral. Which And death is reigning, which mirrors Genesis 3 after the fall of man and death comes into the world. And then at the end of the book of Ruth, you have a marriage. And the Bible ends in a marriage. And so the story of Ruth is really a storyline or really a story of the whole Bible because the theme of Ruth is redemption. And if there's ever one key theme that we could probably mine out of the entire Bible, it would be the theme of redemption. The fact that we are sold by virtue of our sin, into slavery. And God has, through the payment of a ransom, namely the life, death, and resurrection of his own son, has bought us out of slavery to sin and rescued us from that slavery and brought us to himself. So Ruth, which is one of the best written short stories of all time, even from a literary perspective, concludes with scenes of God's hand, a providential blessing, beginning to rest upon Boaz, his new bride, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And subsequently, the story completes its cycle. We've called this sermon series, Famine, Fullness, and the Faithfulness of God. The sermon series began in famine. It began in barrenness. It began in widowhood. It began in poverty. It began in bitterness, idolatry, and devastation. But it ends in fullness. It ends in birth and marriage and riches and sweetness and worship and redemption. And that's the story. That's the way our God works. So 1 Corinthians 13, 13 was a verse I said was sort of a theme verse for this series. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And we see that those themes of faith, hope, and love work their way out in the book of Ruth. Chapter 1 is a great example of faith. It's where devastation and desperation is met with trust in God, as we see it exemplified in Ruth, especially as she clings to Naomi and clings to Naomi's God and to Naomi's people. Then in chapter two, you've got this great expression of hope where there was desperation and Ruth moves out into the fields and begins gleaning. She encounters Boaz. There's provision there. She returns home with great celebration and hopefulness that they may actually have a redeemer. And then chapter 3, you see love. You see Ruth's love for Boaz, Boaz's love for Ruth, and ultimately God's love for us as mirrored in their relationship. And finally, in chapter 4, this is going to bend the nail over. 
that the greatest of these is love. That as we'll, as we'll walk through this redemption story, we see it culminating in the redemption of Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. So three lessons about redemption is what we're going to consider this morning. Three lessons about redemption that we learn from Ruth chapter 4. And Ruth chapter 4 has three main sections to it. I'll go ahead and give you the sections and then we're going to walk through them one at a time. Verses 1 through 6 compromise one section and has one theme of redemption embedded within it. Verses 7 through 12 is another theme of redemption that we're going to unpack. And verses 13 through 22 at the end of the chapter is the third theme of redemption that we're going to unpack. So three lessons we learn about redemption from these three scenes. Here's the first one. In verses 1 through 6, redemption seeks another's advantage. Redemption seeks another's advantage. Let's begin our reading at verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So let's start right there. You remember last week when Ruth had gone to Boaz and asked her, asked him to be her redeemer, her family's redeemer? He was very aware and wanted to do that. But in verse chapter 3, verse 12, he acknowledged the truth that he says in chapter 3, verse 12, Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer near the, nearer than I. So remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to do it, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So the whole idea is, remember, this is, this is the way it's set up in Old, Old Testament Israel, is that there is an order to redemption. The nearest family member takes the first responsibility, then you move out. We saw son or then brother or then uncle or then distant relative. So there, 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 there is a pattern here to this. And Boaz is not about to violate God's law in order to redeem Ruth. He's going to trust God that if he is indeed the redeemer that Ruth is supposed to have, then the redeemer who uh, would be first in line would pass on the offer. Because that was allowed. You weren't required to redeem. You had to have three things in order to redeem. You had to have the right, you had to have the resources, and you had to have the resolve. And resolve is, are you willing to do it? And they could pass on that. And this man, as we will see in just a moment, does just that. But Boaz, so in following God's law, he sits down with the elders at the gate. This is a very public, formal situation. It would be almost like a law court kind of thing in our in our culture today. So he sits down to formalize this redemption and he brings the man here and he basically offers him the, the opportunity to redeem the situation. He says, look, Naomi has a field and needs to sell it to raise money to live on. And if there were a kinsman redeemer, he could buy that field and keep it in the family. But of course, the buyer would ultimately get to add the property to his own inheritance, provided there are no children involved. 
You and you the first in line. You're the first in line. So are you interested? Well, who wouldn't be? This is a really good investment. I mean, basically what's happening is you're buying a field from an older lady who's going to bequeath it to you, who's going to give it to you in a few years when she dies. That's a pretty good investment. However, Boaz drops a little other bit of information on him. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So, at least there's two things at work here. He definitely has the right to the redemption, but he doesn't, he claims to not really have the resources nor the resolve to do it. So Boaz drops this little piece of information on him. He says, oh, by the way, one more thing. When you acquire the field, there's a woman, a young woman that comes with it, and she's the widow of the dead man whose field it was, since Ruth was the wife of Naomi's son who would have inherited the field. So he says, by the way, you've got to marry her and you have to raise up a child for the dead man and the child who will inherit the field, he'll be the one who inherits the field when he grows up. So, well, now that you mention it, I think I'll pass. Costly ministry without a little personal payoff, not really interested. Forget it. Pass. Now, what's interesting here is to compare Boaz and this man who doesn't even get a name. You see, this man is very similar to Orpah in chapter 1. Orpah had the opportunity to cling to Naomi with Ruth, but she decided to go back to Moab. Better opportunity to start a family, better opportunity to have kids, more familiar cultural situation, less risk, not a lot of faith required to do that. I think I'll take the easier road. That's what this guy does. And the Bible leaves him nameless. And we don't, even, we don't hear any more about Orpah either. But Ruth and Boaz, names live on into the very line of Jesus Christ. What lesson do we learn about this? Redemption seeks another's advantage, not your own. This is not uh, an, an, an effort to invest for Boaz to get some sort of financial return on the deal. Boaz is trusting God and letting God write his story and doing the right thing regardless of the payoff. He's not looking for some sort of earthly payoff or some earthly benefit or some earthly advantage. He's merely doing the right thing because he loves God and loves God's people. And so the lesson we learn here is that when we let God write our story, like Ruth and Boaz did, our names, just like their names, will live on forever. But when we resist and try to write our own, like Orpah or the first kinsman redeemer, he doesn't even get a name, our lives are never heard about again. And so it's by losing concern for this earthly legacy reputation that Boaz and Ruth actually gain one. And it's by trying to hold on 
to their reputation and legacy like Orpah and the first kinsman redeemer that they lose it altogether. You see, because brothers and sisters in the Bible, weakness always wins. Weakness always wins. How do we know? Philippians chapter 2. Listen to our Redeemer and what he did. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit like Orpah or like this first kinsman Redeemer. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves like Boaz or Ruth. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point is Jesus lost everything. He gave up everything so that he might redeem us. How did God respond to that? Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Weakness always wins. Those who are most exalted in our world, those who most seek the esteem of men, those who most desire worldly praise and worldly admonition, they will be forgotten. God will see to it. But those who are weak and who are nobodies and who are nothing get whole books of the Bible written about their story. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. Devastation, wreckage, Brokenness, trusting God, walking by faith, taking risks, venturing all on God, they end up in the line of the Messiah or in Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith. So that the great king of Israel, David, and the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have to trace their roots back to a destitute widow her Moabite daughter-in-law, and an aging bachelor from the humble town of Bethlehem is a supreme divine accomplishment. This is the biblical pattern, brothers and sisters. Strength from weakness. Glory from brokenness. That story was written long before another humble woman named Mary from the same insignificant town of Bethlehem was the head of another royal dynasty. This is the way our God works. Redemption seeks another's advantage. Second point. Redemption requires another's investment. Redemption requires another's investment. So we pick this story up at verse 7. And Boaz has now the opportunity to redeem. But it's going to require his own investment to make it happen. And look at how he invests in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, 
You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the woman will give you by this woman. Oh, if those men ever knew how their prayer was answered. (laughs) My goodness. Every single one of those blessings comes true in greatest fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see... Boaz make an investment here. He buys the land. He buys Ruth and Naomi. And they are redeemed. But it required Boaz's investment. So what do we see here that mirrors the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we see in the way Boaz is investing here? First of all, i got four things. First of all, Boaz publicly fulfills all the legal requirements for redemption. He does exactly what is expected of him. He takes the sandal off, takes his flip-flop off, and holds it up. I mean, how cool is that? Just taking your flip-flop off and holding it up in the in the in the people of uh, in the presence of the elders and the and the people of Israel. And so, therefore, he 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 follows it. He commits himself. He acknowledges that this is a covenant. That your witnesses here. That I am. and, And this is very. I mean, this is this is why marriages have witnesses present. And this is why this is covenantal language going on here. And he's entering into a covenant here. He's doing everything that is legally required to fulfill the requirements for redemption. And Jesus did exactly the same. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. On the cross, Jesus paid the public price for our redemption too. And there wasn't one cent left. Whom God put forward, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood, a wrath-atoning sacrifice, that's what propitiation means, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus paid the price so that God can be both just that is, rightly be able to forgive us on the basis of a redemption payment and justify us, that is, count us innocent and declare us righteous in his presence through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says a similar thing. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's the price. There was the price for our redemption. Christ as a curse on the cross. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there's the first. Jesus paid, just like Boaz, all the legal requirements for redemption. Second, like Boaz, being the kinsman redeemer involved a personal cost. And for Jesus to be our redeemer, it implied a great personal cost as well. In fact, his own blood Boaz didn't have to give his blood. Christ did. 
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed, rescued from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, which is what Boaz used, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's what it cost us to be redeemed and ransomed. Third, just as Boaz's redemption of Ruth led to marriage, so does Christ's redemption of us lead to marriage. He marries us. We, are, we become his bride. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ, our husband, loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. And number four, Boaz provided an inheritance for Elimelech's family, and our Christ provides us with an eternal inheritance as well. Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred, namely the death of Jesus, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, Jesus is our greater Boaz. He is the one that has paid all the legal requirements with his own blood at great personal cost that he might lead us into a marriage and bring us into an eternal inheritance. You know what? We're like, Boaz is like Jesus in a lot more ways as well. Like Boaz was related to Ruth and Naomi, so Jesus as God became a man to relate to us. Like the women, Naomi and Ruth, who had no hope and could not save themselves, so too we can't save ourselves. Like Boaz, who wasn't obligated to save the women, save them anyway, so Jesus, who was under no obligation to save us whatsoever, nevertheless did it anyway. Like Boaz, who redeemed the women, so Jesus redeems us. Like Boaz, who satisfied the demands of the law, so Jesus lived without sin to satisfy the demands of God's law and to die under its curse for its breaking by us. And like Boaz paid a personal price to redeem them, so Jesus paid the ultimate personal price to redeem us. Like Boaz loved Ruth as his bride, Jesus loves his church as his bride. Like Boaz, who shared his land and home with the women, so Jesus has prepared an eternal home in his kingdom for us. So that is an amazing thing, that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to invest himself, give himself completely over, body and soul, to death for us, to, re- to redeem us by his work on the cross. Point number three, third and last section, 13 to 21, we've seen that redemption seeks another advantage, another's advantage, verses one through six, redemption requires another's investment, verses 7 through 12. And now we come to the last section, redemption changes another's story. Verses 13 to 21. Let's see how Ruth and Boaz's story as well and Naomi's story gets completely changed from where we saw it at the beginning. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and he became his wife. She became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nishan, Nishan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. You know what we learn from this, brothers and sisters? God's ability to redeem situations is infinitely greater than our ability to mess them up. That's the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is that no matter how bad we've blown it, no matter how bad our lives can be, our life can be, and how bad things can get, God is a restorer of life. That's what we learn from this. Our God notices. Our God cares. Our God enters in. Our God bears burdens. Our God carries crosses to get his people out of trouble and danger. The book of Ruth shows us the Lord's sovereignty over our private and seemingly ordinary decisions. This is an ordinary story. There's nothing sexy. There's no nothing rock star about this. There's nothing that's going to make the New York Times list or the bestseller list or going to be written. A book's going to be written about it outside of the book that's been written in the Bible about it. But there's nothing attractive or, or compelling about this story. It's so ordinary. It's just about a woman who's destitute and a mother-in-law who's broken and a God who'll bend heaven and earth to take care of them. Little did Ruth know that when she set out from Moab that day in Ruth chapter 1 to return to Jerusalem filled with bitterness in her heart and struggling with all of God's providence toward her, little did she know that she would be nursing at the end of this book the very great the very the very grandfather of david how she, how could she have known that and that she would be the great grandmother of the king, of king david how little did she know that in that time that not only would she would her son or her her grandson be the, the the grandfather of David and that she would be the great-grandmother of King David, but she would also be an ancestor to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer of all of God's people. Naomi lost all the things that she had been clinging to, all of her earthly fullness. And like Naomi, so often we can look at our outward circumstances and feel bitter toward the Lord because we cannot see beyond our own situation to what he is doing or why he's doing it. And yet even this loss was part of God's gracious plan for her good. If she had not first, listen to me, if Naomi had not first lost everything 
we would never have known about her. We would never have known about her. She would never have come to appreciate Ruth's true worth. She would never have grown in her own understanding of the Lord. She had had to lose her husband and two sons to appreciate Ruth, who became to her one who was better than seven sons. Now, you have to appreciate that metaphor. To have a son was to, was to, be, was to be esteemed and, and to, 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 to rest under the blessing of God. And yet, what these people are, are saying to Naomi is that Ruth has become better than seven sons to Naomi. That it's a set, and seven is the biblical number for fullness, perfection, completeness. It's like if you had everything you ever wanted, but you didn't have Ruth, you don't have anything. Ruth is God's provision to you. And you know where she learned that? In the crucible of suffering. Painful as it was for her, it was necessary for her spiritual growth and her place in God's plan. And you know what? So it is for us as well. This is why life can seem, brothers and sisters, so untidy for us as the people of God. Does your life just feel untidy sometimes like God should be? I mean, I'm a Christian for crying out loud. Shouldn't it be a little bit easier? You know what? You know why it's not tidy? Because he's not done. The redemption story is not finished yet. He's not yet finished his business. There are many loose ends. The tapestry is only partially complete. He still has much weaving to do in which he will bring these loose ends together. Perhaps in someone else's life in the future, long after we are gone, and we got to be okay with that. God means to bring blessings and answers to prayer beyond anything we could ask or ever imagine, even as he did here. And Ruth and Naomi... We assume at least Naomi would not live to see most of that fulfillment. So there's a broad and general lesson to be learned here in the way God writes our redemption stories. The explanation for much that takes place in our lives, listen to me, the explanation for much of what happens to our lives lies well beyond our lives and may be hidden from us all throughout our lives. For God does not mean to touch only our lives by what he does in us. He has the lives of others in view, even of those who are not yet born. You know, if you think about the story of Ruth and you just step back for a minute and you say, the book of Ruth didn't start in Ruth chapter 1. It didn't even start in the time of the judges. You know where it started? In the book of Genesis with Lot. That's where it starts. Why do I say that? I don't have time to go into the whole sinister, sick, sinful, sexual story of Lot and his daughters. But do you know what came from that? The Moabites came from that. And you know what came from the Moabites? Ruth. And you know what came from Ruth? King David. And you know what came from King David? Jesus. Don't tell me that God's ability to fix things is not greater than our ability to mess things up. He will take the worst, wicked, sinful, disgusting stuff 
and bring a Messiah out of it. That's what our God does. He takes incest and makes a Messiah out of it. In Matthew 1, the foreigner Ruth is included with the unwed unwed Mary, the prostitute Tamar, and the adulteress Bathsheba as the only four women included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why those four women? I mean, couldn't we get a Sarah in there? Well, Sarah is in there. You know. But couldn't we get a more virtuous picture? Well, there's not a lot of virtuous pictures to be had in the Old Testament. (laughs) Indeed, the inclusion of each woman, Mary, Tamar, Bathsheba, Ruth, the inclusion of each of these women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1 reinforces the truth that Jesus saves us by pure grace and blesses even the least likely people from the least deserving backgrounds. That's me. I'm a least likely candidate for salvation from the least likely background. Zero spiritual pedigree. Only demerit. Boaz's father was Salmon, who married Rahab, the harlot, who saved the spies of Jericho. Boaz continues the line of Judah by marrying Ruth, a Gentile woman from one of Israel's ancient enemies, Moab. And Judah, though privileged to be prophesied as the head of the line from which the Messianic king would come, initiated the line by impregnating Tamar, his widowed daughter-in-law. And he thus fathered twins whose illegitimacy would have kept his children from citizenship in Israel until the 10th generation. And you know who that is? Boaz. So the line of Christ is replete with scandalous Grace, the Bible is a scandalous document that is filled with God's grace toward undeserving and ill-deserving people. Why would the Lord Jesus Christ, who could have chosen to be descended from anyone at all, choose to be descended from such a soiled, polluted, sinful line? You know why? Because he came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to rescue sinners, his own ancestors, people like us. Ian Duguid puts it this way. When he came to seek and save the lost, he didn't come garbed in protective clothing like a scientist suited up to handle bubonic plague samples in a laboratory. At the beginning of his life, Jesus came into the world naked, unprotected, not separated from sinners, but descended from a long line of them. During his lifetime, Jesus was surrounded by sinners. He was the friend of sinners. If he kept shocking company while he was alive, are you surprised that he would keep keep scandalous company when he died? Or, Or more than that, that he would keep even more scandalous company before he ever came into the world? He was born in the midst of scandalous company. He lived in the midst of scandalous company. He was accused of holding fast and being a friend of tax collectors and sinners and being a drunkard. And if he kept that company while he was alive, and then when he died, he was flanked by two thieves at his crucifixion, more scandal. Why would the Lord of the universe expose himself to such pain and humiliation? Because this is how he saved sinners. He could not save them by staying at a safe, sanitary distance. 
He had to get up to his neck in sin. Our sin. He gave up his life and went down into death. He laid down his life for us. He came into our mess to identify us. And he went down into death so that he might pay the price of our redemption. Our sin has purchased us a one-way ticket to hell. What Jesus did on the cross was take the ticket out of our hands and pick up our fare. And instead gave us a new ticket he earned by his righteous life, a ticket that will admit us into the presence of God. He switched places with us, going where we deserve to go while sending us to the place that only he deserves to go. So my question for you this morning is, do you know this Redeemer? Surely not everybody in this room has decidedly and, and, and completely given their lives over to Christ. So if you're here this morning, I want you to know that the only thing that will disqualify you is your own sense of qualification. That's the only thing that will disqualify you. If you will admit to yourself that you are a scandalous sinner who doesn't deserve to go to heaven, that's ashamed to admit to others what you have done or not done, and if you will acknowledge that before Jesus, if you will willingly forsake your sin and your right to self-control and self-autonomy and the right to retain lordship over your life, Jesus will receive you. He will cleanse you, he will bring you into the family, and he will write a redemption story with you and through you. Ultimately to his glory and honor as you give praise to him, to the glory of God the Father for accomplishing his redemption for you. So see, brothers and sisters, it's not about us, is it? It's all about the redemption story that God is writing that centers on Jesus and our lives get to play a small bit part in that cosmic story. So my application to my brothers and sisters, friends, fellow Christians, lend me your hearts for a moment. Let God write your story. The big idea in this section of scripture is that piety and providence are inextricably connected. What do I mean by that? We see when providence sends curveballs, when there's famine and death and difficulties and trials, the way we respond makes all the difference. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is going to work out his providential plan. But our responsibility is to learn from this story. If Ruth did not cling to Naomi, if Ruth did not trust God where Naomi's faith was waning, if these women did not continue to struggle though they struggled deeply, did not continue to struggle in faith and hope and love toward God, to be committed to live in holiness and trust God to bless them. And yes, even though being disappointed at times because of his timing, but by his grace, God comes through for them. And in his goodness, he smiles upon them. And so we must let God be God. We must let God do with our lives what he wants to do with our lives. And our responsibility is to trust him, to cling to him, to hold fast to him, and to hope in him. And our lives will not be lived in vain. There, there are strands and trajectories of our life that we will never know why. You might look back on your past and wonder, why in the world was that a part of my story? 
Why, why all that? Why did this come? Why this happen? You know what? You don't have to know why. You don't have to know why. You just have to know that it came from a, the hands of a God who is committed to redeeming you. And just like he put Ruth in the line of Christ, so if you're in him, he puts you in his line too. And your life is being redeemed and you're a part of that genealogy. And your life too will be a testimony to the scandalous grace of God in redeeming a sinner. And the good news is that as you hold on to him and as he enables you to hold on to him and as he holds on to you when you don't feel like you can hold on to him, he's writing a beautiful story. That when you learn about it and when you look back on it, you will fall down on your face and worship before God. And saying, oh God, I didn't understand it then, but I understand some of it now and I'm going to spend eternity completely understanding the way your providence worked out in my life. I'm so thankful that you wrote my story the way you wrote it. So we have to be committed to clinging to him, trusting his heart when we can't trace his hand, holding fast to him. And church, I want to leave with, I want to close with this application to us. Uh, and I got to leave with a horizontal application here too. I want so badly for not just our church, but churches in our community and all around the world to be safe places for sinners to be in. We got to be a safe place for sinners. Think about this. Boaz was such a safe place for Ruth and Naomi in all their brokenness, in all their sin, in all their difficulty. And I'm wondering, would Ruth find welcome here? If Ruth were to be among us, would she find welcome here? Would she find refuge here? Would she find help here? Or would she find judgment here? Can people like Ruth find a welcome in our churches and not just in our churches, in our homes? Are they places where the last, the least, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon? Are our churches safe places where people whose lifestyles in Owensboro are notorious but can come without being stared at or judged? Is there any danger of our fellowship being known as that church where all the sinners go? Or are we good only to welcome those who are already somewhat religious, who make our church look attractive, and those who at least in some measure speak the language of the church community and whose faces already seem to fit? Will we welcome others as God has welcomed us? Will we sit down with people we don't know and speak to them and learn about their stories? Will someone make them feel special, make them feel important, make them feel wanted, no matter how messy their lives are? Because you know what? Our lives are a mess too, no matter what you're wearing right now. Will you make them feel like a person of eternal value and worth? And I say that to myself because this is all of our job. This is what the command that's given by Paul through the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Rome is the same command that he gives to us. Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. That's what Ruth did for Naomi. That's what Boaz did for Ruth. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what we have to do for others. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the opportunity to spend time this morning reflecting on this great story that you have given us. And there is so much that could have been talked about and opened up and pray that what was preached and thought about together over these last four weeks would just leave an indelible impression upon us. Not because I said anything, but because your word is powerful and able to give us the perspective that we need and we'll give all glory to you for it. Father, thank you for writing redemption stories in our own lives. Thank you for the just absolute exquisite uh, redemption story that you've written here in the book of Ruth. And we know that you've done it 10,000 times over. And we pray that you would continue to do it in us, in our families, among our friends and co-workers and neighbors, among those we love. May we welcome them as you have welcomed us. Thank you for welcoming us through and because of Jesus, in whose redeeming name we pray.